Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Dr. Deborah Theobald McClendon. And we are at her home today where she has a clinical practice in Woodland Hills. It's an October day and it's snowed outside. So you have how many inches of snow at your house? I think probably about 12 to 14 we got last night. That is crazy. Um, I hope that's the biggest snowstorm of the year. Oh, yes. Well, um, <laughs> that you know, would be you wonderful. Can, in April, you can tell everybody that our biggest snowstorm was the last week of October. Um, I'm going to read a bio here um, from Dr. McClendon so our listeners know who she is and her clinical and education expertise. But just to let our listeners first know, we're going to be talking about anxiety and scrupulosity in this podcast. Dr. McClendon is a licensed um, psychologist in the state of Utah with an office located in southern Utah County. She is a clinical psychologist with training in marriage and family therapy. She focused her practice on helping those with anxiety and OCD, especially scrupulosity, emotionally regulation, regulation, depression, grief, trauma crisis, or marriage relationship issues. She and her husband have written the book Commitment to the Covenant, Strengthening the Me, We, and Thee of Marriage. And I believe that's available at Desert Book. Yes, it is. I encourage all of our listeners to check out that book. We'll put a link in our podcast to where you can get that and the name again. Um, going back to her bio, she is a dynamic public speaker addressing mental health and marital issues. She speaks at larger conferences such as BYU Education Week and Women's Conferences, as well as smaller company and department treats, retreats and in-service meetings. Um, so thank you for being on the podcast. You're welcome. I'm happy to do it. My wife and I became aware of Dr. McClendon, um, and I'm going to try to say your name right the whole podcast. As my listeners know, sometimes I vary and start making up names for people that aren't their real names, but we're going to stay on McClendon. Uh, my wife and I became aware of your work when my wife um, came across an article in the digital version of the September Ensign talking about scrupulosity. And we have served with the YSAs and recognized some um, OCD anxiety in our YSAs. So we were drawn to that article and then found another article that you had written earlier in the Ensign in April. So for our listeners, we're going to start with her April article, which talks about anxiety um, kind of talking about is, you know, I think you talk about helpful anxiety and more difficult anxiety and how that affects the spirit. And then we're going to talk about scrupulosity in this podcast. And the scrupulosity part will be Dr. McClendon helping us understand what that is so we can potentially see that in other people that we care about. And then from her clinical expertise, what what can be done to help people get through that and solve that. Is that a fair overview? I think that sounds good. We started with a prayer before we um, recorded, uh, as we just want this to be a podcast that answers questions for our listeners and gives you better tools if you're ministering to those that may have some of these challenges. So let's go ahead and just talk about your April article. Yeah, these two articles were actually written with my clients that had scrupulosity and anxiety difficulties. They have really struggled as faithful members of the church who are very loyal to their covenants to discern between anxiety and the spirit. And so they helped they helped me kind of work through this. And and I think a, a helpful idea that to start is to say, what is anxiety? Why do we have anxiety? Because anxiety is a normal emotion that we all have. And there are ways that anxiety is helpful to us. And so it's not that we are trying to eradicate anxiety. We're always going to get little bits of nervousness before performance, for example, things like that. So the, the idea here is how do we understand when anxiety has gone from that normal range to a pathological range? So in, in the normal range, Anxiety actually is helpful to us. We perform better. If it's we interesting. I've never heard anxiety being helpful, but that's interesting. Yeah. So if we don't have any anxiety, for example, before we take a test in college, you've got a lot of young, uh, young adults that listen to this. If we think the teacher's lax, 
and the test isn't that important. We don't study because there's no anxiety. There's nothing kind of pushing us. We don't do well on the test. So it's actually the case that a mild or moderate level of anxiety helps us perform better and it's helpful in our lives. So you think about having a little bit of anxiety before you give a church talk. You're probably going to perform better because you've prepared better and there's some motivation there. But if you just like, oh, I'm not worried about it. I'm going to wing it. I'm going to go up there without any notes. Unless you're an expert speaker, you might not do so well. Um, it's when our anxiety gets to a very high level that it becomes problematic. And these are the kind of people that I end up working with in my own practice. But at a low level, anxiety helps all of us. And it's going to continue to be with each of us. And so we need to all work to create a healthy relationship with anxiety. When I give presentations about anxiety, I get nervous before I give the presentation. That's kind of ironic. And it's actually interesting that I get more nervous talking about anxiety than I do if I talk about depression. And I think that's because anxiety is like getting some attention here. But I tell people that the fact that I'm nervous is better for them as listeners because I'm going to give a better performance for them. So I want the listeners to think about how anxiety has actually helped them in their lives because we're not trying to get rid of it. It's an emotion that Heavenly Father's given us that gives us information, right? If you think about- It's an emotion that Heavenly Father gives us. Yeah, and he gives it to us to help us. It prepares us for action. It notifies us of risk. It helps us focus on what is just perfectly right in front of us that we need to focus on. And it prepares us to be able to meet that challenge in an appropriate, healthy way. So how has anxiety been helpful in your life? I think it's an important question. It's when the anxiety tops out, you get really high, that it starts to distort reality, performance drops. Think about choking. Have you ever choked on a test or in a sporting event, right? You, I mean, the young adult experience in college, the BYU testing center or wherever, like, you know, you've studied, you know, the material and your anxiety is so high, you cannot pull it up and, and you get the question wrong. You know, we all know that experience. <laughs> So, so the challenge for each of us is to create a healthy relationship with anxiety. Um, when the spirit gets involved at a low level of anxiety, the normative level of anxiety, we can discern the spirit usually pretty well um, because there's not a lot of distortion there. We're, we're kind of ramped up. We're ready for attention. We're paying attention. We're focusing. We can do okay. But at the higher level of anxiety, the body is releasing stress hormones. You've got adrenaline and cortisol that start to interfere with your ability to feel the spirit. So your body's a delicate instrument and the anxiety starts messing with it for lack of a better word. And so it's hard to discern between those promptings sometimes. So it's interesting. I so have, in high anxiety, the body releases hormones that would be a normal reaction to high anxiety. I'm just trying to make sure I understand yeah. that that then can cause problems with all those hormones. Yes. Okay. They're being released at a lower level too, but we can manage them better. At a lower level. At, right. If you think about a 10 scale, on a zero to 10 scale, 10 being the highest, if I have a level three of anxiety, I can handle that. That's fine. But if I have a, an eight and a half, nine, 10, I'm not functioning at that point. Right. So when we're trying to discern the spirit, if our anxiety is a three, we can do it. It's okay. We might be a little bit nervous, worried about our child or worried about a test or a job interview, and, and that's fine. So um, I, there's a chart in the April 2019 article that your listeners might want to refer to that compares anxiety versus the spirit. And it's really this idea that in anxiety, you're unsettled, you're confused, and it's very impulsive. If you have this anxious thought, you've just got to act on it and you've got to act on it now. But the spirit allows us space to ponder, to breathe, to process through our journey. And even if we have feelings of dissonance, for example, if we have truly done something sinful and we're feeling guilt, in the spirit, we can still feel calm even though we feel guilty. 
I like that. But in anxiety, we can't find that sense of calm, right? So the spirit is going to feel differently than the anxiety. And if we learn to discern between those two, it can be really, really very helpful because one of the best interventions for anxiety is simply to identify it and label it and say, this is anxiety because anxiety lies to us and it distorts reality at the higher level. And if we are not able to identify it as anxiety, then we get sucked into its corruption. And that's when our reality starts to get distorted. Um, there's a natural instinct I would have would not to label anything that sort of potentially is sort of an emotional challenge because I would worry that maybe that makes me, it just seems, uh, it may just make me worried about labeling anything. Mm. And I think your point is putting a label like anxiety then is perhaps the first step to sort of address it, to call it what it is and name it what it is so you can kind of move forward. It is because anxiety is so compelling. It's so uncomfortable and um, it just very strong at these higher levels. And so people become fused with that anxiety and don't feel really like they have agency to act separately from that. And so the moment you can pull yourself away from that fusion in one um, theory of therapy called ACT therapy, they call it defusion, literally coming away from that fusion, you're able to actually see what's going on and say, this is anxiety. But if, if you can't even see that it's anxiety, you don't have any chance of of working with it in a healthy way and you're just going to get sucked into it it's interesting and and spiral down um one of the biggest things that i feel is really helpful as you think about anxiety versus the spirit is this idea about anxiety being impulsive someone may get a prompting and if it's anxiety they feel like oh my gosh i have to act on this right now it's a sense of immediacy this horrible sense of urgency. And basically one client said, if I don't do it right now, I'm going to hell. That's how anxiety speaks. Could that at, be a spiritual prompting as well as just a work prompting or a... not typically because the spirit doesn't teach us through condemnation. Spirit doesn't teach us through that sense of, uh, confusion. It always gives us that space and that calmness. So for example, one client, um, taught me something very important about this. He said, I had to learn that revelation isn't that easy. And one of the talks that really helped him that I've continued to use in my presentations, because I think it's so powerful, is Richard G. Scott's talk to acquire spiritual guidance from October 2009. And in this talk, he talks about being in a, in a class at church with a humble priesthood leader, and he felt the spirit flow and he recorded promptings. And then he went to a, I believe, a priesthood meeting in his own ward. And it didn't seem that the spirit was quite so readily there with the teacher. And yet he started to still receive his own promptings. And then this is what he goes through. I'd like to walk through Good. with you just, just to make this really important point. So this is Richard G. Scott, an apostle of the Lord. We would think he could receive revelation pretty easily. And listen to how much work it takes here. Strong impressions began to flow. He wrote them down. He sought a more private location where he continued to write the feelings that flooded into his heart and mind. After each powerful impression was recorded, he pondered the feelings he'd received to determine if he'd accurately expressed them. He then made a few minor changes. He studied their meaning and application for his own life. He then prayed and reviewed with the Lord what he thought he had been taught. And when a feeling of peace came, he thanked him for the guidance given. But then it still, he still wasn't done. He said, I was then impressed to ask, was there yet more to be given? And he received further impressions. The process of writing down the impressions, pondering and praying for confirmation was repeated. Again, I was prompted to ask, is there more I should know? And there was. He ends with that. There still was more. So I love that principle for the people here who are really struggling to discern anxiety from the spirit. Revelation is a process of spiritual work and anxiety makes it seem way too easy that this is it and I've got to act right now. And if I don't act right now, I'm going to hell and that's it. Wow. And, and so the spirit gives us the space to work through and ponder, to receive revelation and to ask, is this correct? Is this right? 
So if we're receiving a prompting that we think, for example, is that we need to repent for something that we've done, if we are truly guilty of a sin, the Spirit respects us enough to allow us to ponder through that. Give us a day or two or a week or two to ponder, what is this? What does this mean? What do I need to do? How do I need to move forward? But the anxiety just comes down with this eternal damnation. You better do this right now or you're going to hell kind of thing. Wow. So I, I love that example from Richard G. Scott. And that was a client that, that shared that with me and his process. And so anxiety versus the spirit, we all have to negotiate that. Just like we have to negotiate a healthy relationship with anxiety. As members of the church, we're all seeking personal revelation. President Nelson's pushing very clearly that we all need to be worthy to qualify for the personal revelation in our life. So we each are going to have to negotiate these issues. Now, what happens when we're in a situation where you naturally would feel anxiety and you still need the spirit and elder Hales has, has given a quote that basically says, we will receive the promptings in the way that we need them at the time that we need them. So what so, a great quote. I don't remember that quote. Well, that's not the word for word, but, but that's, uh, I love the principle behind that. Yeah. That, that we get it. Sometimes we need stronger impressions than others. And if we're feeling some anxiety because we are in what would typically be a legitimately anxiety provoking situation, that we can still access the spirit. But it's when that anxiety creeps up into that pathological range that our ability to discern becomes corrupted. And that's where when we start getting into the obsessive compulsive disorder side of things. So um, just for maybe a little education for your listeners, obsessive compulsive disorder is where anxiety gets so high that um, people experience obsessions. These are repeated thoughts, urges that they just cannot control. They're unwanted, they're distressing, they come in and they cannot get rid of them. And this is a mental illness. There are structures in the brain that are malfunctioning. So where a normal person may be able to have a distressing thought and it can kind of come in and then go out, for someone with OCD, the thought comes in and then it recycles and it recycles. And the more it recycles, the more distress it causes. And so the anxiety is so strong. It's so compelling that they want to get rid of the anxiety. So they attempt to neutralize or get rid of um, the anxiety. Let me just speak about some of the types of obsessions. I'll just mention them. Their obsessions around contamination, right? That's what your 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 listeners may be most familiar with OCD and the idea of people washing their hands a lot because they're afraid of germs and getting sick or dying from germs. So that's a common one, contamination. Having things be symmetrical or be in order. Um, obsessions around aggression or harm. We have then the scrupulosity things, which we'll talk about in a minute. Doubt or even sexual obsessions become so distressing and difficult for people. So as they attempt to ignore, suppress the thoughts, neutralize them, they get into this pattern of performing a compulsion is the word. They're performing an act. It can be a mental act, such as counting or saying prayers, or it can be a physical act, such as the hand washing we just talked about. They do these in an attempt to reduce the anxiety that's caused by the obsessions. So again, it can be washing and cleaning, checking things, arranging things, repeating things, confessing, as we'll talk about in scrupulosity. And the problem is that compulsions work, but they only work temporarily. And so it's not an adaptive way to handle the anxiety because the anxiety just comes back. But it's a trap that people get stuck into because it does release that it really, um, because it does reduce that anxiety temporarily, they think, okay, I just need to do that some more. And I just need to do that some more. Neil and Maxwell gave a quote. This is all the way back in 1976. This is in the Enzyme, November 1976 for someone looking it up. He says, there's a difference, therefore, between being anxiously engaged and being over anxious. So for the LDS community, we're hard workers, right? Right. We're trying, we're trying to do what the Lord wants us to do, and we're trying to live good lives. And we want to be anxiously engaged and have a good, healthy level of anxiety. But if we're getting over-anxious and we are not able 
to function well, because at that high level of anxiety, remember our performance goes down, we get to the point where we're unable to cope. That's where we run into these problems. So in OCD, um, people are just trapped in these horrible cycles and they do not know how to break them. And again, the, the structures in the brain are malfunctioning. I love and where you just use that. That makes me just, when you said that, I thought I can understand a physical illness, illness like kidney disease because the structures in the kidney are not working right. Correct. But when you just use that vocabulary, Dr. McClendon, to describe the brain, that was very helpful for me. Yes. If you have someone have an MRI with obsessive compulsive disorder, you will see parts of the brain lit up. They are overactive Interesting. from the brain of a normal person in the sense of someone who does not have obsessive compulsive disorder. So that can be a helpful idea for someone to say, this is not my fault. I'm not to blame. This is a mental illness and I need to learn how to get the structures in my brain to function in a healthy way again. And you do that through behavior therapy and, and things. But if you just are trying to go on the way you've been going, un unless you learn the therapeutic interventions to do that, it's a cycle that often doesn't get, get broken. So we've talked about different um, types of OCD. Scrupulosity is, is one type of OCD. It is an obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you go to a psychologist and you get a diagnosis, the diagnosis is obsessive compulsive disorder. Scrupulosity is a, a subtype that describes a certain flavor, um, just like the flavor of germs or the flavor of symmetry or things like that. So in, in obsessive compulsive disorder scrupulosity, you have people who are becoming hypersensitive, oversensitive, to uh, spiritual things to the point where they are seeing sin where others in the normal faith community would not say it was a sinful behavior. You know, they'd say, hey, what do you think about this? And someone in the faith community would say, oh, it's fine, no big deal. But they are feeling it's a major indiscretion. There are no minor issues in scrupulosity. Every issue is a major issue. The anxiety is at such a high level that they feel like their eternal salvation is hanging in the balance for everything. So they are relentlessly plagued with pathological, toxic guilt. This is not the kind of guilt that comes when you have low anxiety and you're feeling the spirit and the spirit is saying, Hey, you messed up here. You need to make a correction. This is pathological, toxic guilt that is not helpful it's not based in reality because the anxiety is corrupting and distorting their sense of reality. And so the normal efforts to repent and confess are ineffective. So let me, um, yeah, you have, I just want to come back before we leave anxiety completely, because I do want to focus on scrupulosity. A question came to my mind. Let's say I'm a young parent and I recognize that a lot of good LDS kids have a lot of anxiety. And I want to do everything I can as a parent, and I recognize this may not be possible, to try to create an environment where it decreases the chance my kids will have high anxiety and this dysfunctional anxiety. Mm -hmm. Is that a realistic goal for a parent? Or is a goal, or just any advice to parents that want to help their kids not have this challenge? <laughs> I, think, I think the best thing is to talk about it for what it is talk about how anxiety can help your child. You know, honey, it's good that you're nervous about this because you're studying more. But then say, if you are so panicked that you're shutting down, this isn't healthy. You know, so, so I've you talked could to have my... a family night lesson on anxiety. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or tie it into the come follow me lesson somehow. Absolutely. I've talked to my own teenage daughters who are in high school and concerned about grades and, and trying to do well. And I have high standards for them. And we talk about, we want you to be getting A's and such like that. But they've had a couple of specific situations come up in a specific class, a couple of specific classes where we had to actually be the ones to say to them, we want you to be healthy and happy. And if trying to get this situation resolved is going to put you in a panic attack and crisis, then the A is not worth it to us. 
And so as parents, you can say, we have high standards, but in the end, the most important thing is for you to be healthy. And I think that that can be very helpful I like for, that. for children. I really like that. I, as a YSA bishop, sometimes would talk about, and I don't know, and I'm asking you, someone who's clinically trained, I used to say sometimes to the YSA, stress is sort of about today, and anxiety is a little bit more about the future. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? And if so, yes. just... That's one of the most important things I share with people, and psychologists teach people about anxiety, is that it's future-oriented. It's anticipating something. And so one of the best treatments treatment interventions is to pull somebody back into the present moment. So if I'm anticipating or worrying about my child and their future five years from now, 10 years from now, it gets so big. Right. You can't handle that. You read these articles. You need a million dollars for every kid. Yeah. What's going to happen in college and when they get married and, and oh my gosh, my grandchildren and right, all of a sudden you're in a complete panic. And what we have to do is come back to the present moment and say, where are we today? What's in front of you today? I like that. Okay, I'm looking at what's in front of me today. I can do that. But I can't do the next 10 years in this moment today. None of us can. That's way too much. I like that. Sometimes, and we're not going to get into porn too much on this podcast. We've done some others on that. But sometimes I felt impressed that um, porn was obviously a sin. It was sort of what we saw above the iceberg sometimes. But some of the wise things I felt the best way to solve that was sort of figure out was the bottom of the iceberg. And sometimes that was anxiety and That's stress. Right. And it was sort of a coping mechanism to sort of escape or deal with that. And I felt impressed at times if I just talked about the need to stop porn, they kind of got that. But if we kind of set that on the shelf sometimes and said, okay, let's try to figure out or let's go to clinical people that can figure that out. Then it seemed like we were able to connect the dots and sometimes help a YSA solve something above the iceberg. Right. Yeah, it becomes a safety behavior, which is some. It's a term we use to describe safety behavior. Anything that they're doing to try to reduce the anxiety so that they don't have to deal with it. And and like you say, escape becomes an escape hatch. They don't have to deal with reality, so they don't learn how to cope in a healthy way with the anxiety. They've just taken that escape hatch. And so they have to keep taking that escape hatch because they're not learning how to actually cope with that experience. And being a former runner, I've wondered if my long distance running days, Dr. McLennan, were sometimes (laughs) tied into that. I don't know. Well, it can be very healthy. (laughs) Exercise is good for you. And a lot of runners I know talk about how that becomes their ponder in meditation time. But it can also become an unhealthy escape if it's done in an addictive, unhealthy way. You know, if you're going on long runs when you should be at work or should be with the family, then those might be clues that it's not as healthy. But if you're going for a good run on a Saturday morning, you know, you know what I mean? So you want to keep track of whether that's in a healthy place or not, but certainly soothing and pondering is important for all of us just for emotional health. But we want to kind of check our intentions there and say, okay, am I doing this to avoid because I don't want to deal with what's there today? Or am I doing this because I, I want to have my meditation time with the Lord and I want to exercise my body. That's good. Yeah. I'm reminded of something I think a grandparent once told me when I used to think of bad things that would happen. And I don't know if this is a good, I'm (laughs) kind of bouncing. I'm using your clinical time here, but he used to say, well, just think of that and actually happening and then thinking, is it really that bad? And it was something about my worst fears when I think about them, like failing a test. Mm -hmm. And then I go, okay. If I really fail the test, what, how bad is that? What's sometimes just accepting the bad thing I was thinking about got me past the bad thing in a positive way to just move forward because I don't know if that's a good idea or not. Yeah, that's it. The essence of a lot of what we do in treatment is exposure therapy and addressing the thing that we fear. If you think about your experiences in life with anxiety, it's so strong, it's so compelling, and it tells you the worst case scenario is going to happen. But you don't always even have a good sense of what that Interesting. means. The anxiety is just very vague and confusing. So for someone with obsessive compulsive disorders with a contamination problem, they're afraid of germs, right? If I touch this thing, anxiety is just like, no, that is just too horrible. That's just unthinkable. Can't even, right? And all of a sudden you're thinking, I'm going to end up in the ER. I'm going to die. But if you really step back and say, okay, if I touch this thing, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Okay, 
maybe I might get a cold for a couple of days. <laughs> All of a sudden you go, okay, well, okay, that's a little more manageable than thinking I'm going to be on my deathbed. Interesting. So I think what you're doing there is, again, calling the lie to the distortion calling that the anxiety lie. brings in. Anxiety is lying to us and saying, okay, what is the worst case scenario? Even if it were to happen, it once we actually do it, it ends up not being as bad as what anxiety betrays you to believe. That's yeah. very helpful. Thank you're right you. on. No, you're right on. Well, sometimes we're gut, God, I think God gives us gut instincts sometimes that are helpful. Certainly. But we also need really good clinical people sometimes to help us solve more complicated situations. Yes, let's fully transition to scrupulosity. Just in fairness to our listeners, it's taken me two weeks to learn how to say that word correctly. <laughs> I don't know. My family's been hearing me say it since my wife showed me this article and I think I'm okay on scrupulosity. I Comes can't from the spell word it. Scruple, right? <laughs> scruple. And yeah. that's what my wife was showing is the origin of that word, which is very helpful. And, but, I, and again, it's. But yeah, teach us what it is and then teach us how to overcome it. I sure. think that's what you're doing. Sure. And in all fairness to you, I was going to say the word scrupulosity is not in the diagnostic statistical manual. Um, it's the name that's been given to this religious subset. It's obsessive compulsive disorder. So you're, it's fair that you don't know how to say the word. Thank you. <laughs> it's a word that's not commonly known because it's, it's a part of OCD. It's, it's a descriptive way to say this is the type of flavor of OCD that somebody is having. So, so with this scrupulosity, they have tremendous fears of offending God, blasphemy, immoral thoughts, immoral acts, fears of sinning in the Jewish community. It's fears of not performing their rituals properly. Uh, we don't see that as much in the LDS community, but in the Jewish community, there's a lot of rituals. And so the scrupulosity plays out a lot in that way. And conventional religious rituals that are done, you know, we have rituals within the church, prayer, sacrament, temple attendance. These are done in a normal way in the normal faith community to create a sense of community, to create a sense of closeness to God, to give us faith and hope through trials. In scrupulosity, the anxiety is so high and it corrupts and distorts reality so much that the rituals take on the obsessive piece and they're no longer done out of faith or hope, but out of fear of condemnation because that anxiety is coming down in that condemning way. So they don't bring peace and hope to them anymore the way that it would typically for us. So for those of us who may be praying or fasting or going to the temple for peace and hope in a normal faith community, we can feel uplifted by that. But someone with scrupulosity can actually feel worse. They feel punished. They feel, or their fear of punishment, they're feeling condemned. So they may do these things still out of a sense of duty and obligation because they're wanting to be obedient but they're not connecting with the spirit in those things and they're not feeling uplifted. So I had one client um, say that she had learned that she, through the scrupulosity, that she was worshiping the wrong God and she'd come to see him as a scary dictator kind of to God with a checklist. Interesting. And, and yet we know doctrinally that we have a loving God who wants nothing but to exalt us. His whole purpose is to bring about the immortality eternal life of man he wants to exalt us and yet scrupulosity says god's looking to condemn you and it's just not true so you have that distorted lens talk about i want to keep talking about this but talk of and you've mentioned this but i just want to come back to it how how would somebody with scrupulosity then not feel the spirit because it seems like if you're doing all these even increased religious behaviors and and you don't feel the spirit, you're kind of like thinking then your conclusion would be God doesn't love me mm -hmm. or there is something still that I'm not doing right or there's something I've done in the past that's haunting me, that's keeping me from feel the spirit. Just help our listeners connect the dots with, with this behavior and not feeling the spirit or maybe not feeling the spirit, then you conclude that leads you into scrupulosity. I sometimes don't know maybe which comes first. Right. I think again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier as we talked about um, healthy levels of anxiety and the pathological levels of anxiety. So when we get to this unhealthy, toxic level of anxiety, our stress hormones are so high that they're interfering. F 
physiologically with our ability to perceive the spirit. So they can be sitting in a temple session or be saying prayers and just flooded in a way, um, physiologically flooded in a way that distorts and disrupts their ability to perceive the spirit talks to us in very subtle, subtle ways. So I don't know if I answered yeah, that's that helpful. Quite, yeah, that's helpful. Quite well, um, it becomes really tricky because these are people who are very loyal to God. They're very conscientious. They want to be good sons and daughters of God and they are, and they're working hard. And then the anxiety creates that doubt and scrupulosity. They'll have a thought come up from something they did 10, 15, 20 years ago, and it will just start to torment and haunt them. Those are strong words, but it's, it's, it's accurate about their experiences. They're just tormented by the thought of this, something I may have done X number of years ago, and maybe I didn't properly repent of it. That anxiety, we talked about anxiety is forward thinking and it's worrying about anticipating something. Scrupulosity is stuck in the past. And you say, well, what's the difference? Interesting. Well, it's, they're stuck in the past, worried about how that past that can't be changed will affect their future eternal salvation. That's very interesting. So it, they get into just this horrible uh, torment. Had a client recently say, I didn't know I could ever suffer so much as I have with scrupulosity. And th there's different flavors. Uh, just like with OCD, uh, the scrupulosity plays out in different ways with different people. So for some, they get into this this trap of feeling like they have to protect themselves, uh, not well, and protect themselves, but perfect themselves. And it really ends up um, when you step back, it becomes this process of um, denying Jesus Christ, but they don't recognize it as that because they feel like they have to do it themselves. And there's no way that they could be forgiven through the atonement for these things. They have to fix it. They have to fix it. So that is a really, really tricky one. Um, is there things culturally that sometimes add to that? Because because um, I agree with you, our doctrine is we don't need to be perfect. The atonement makes the difference. But sometimes with those YSAs, I'd, I'd sense they didn't own that doctrine, that they felt like this is sort of my journey to solve everything myself and I need to pay the price. And, um, and I don't know if that was just or if our culture somehow added to that or our feeling of needing to be perfect, um, we kind of have a perfectionist culture. I don't know if that's different from other faiths or more in our faith, but I, I sometimes worry that some of that adds to that. I do think we have a lot of cultural distortions. Um, distortion maybe is a little strong of a word there, but um, doctrinally, we see very clearly that God loves his children. And yet, when we continue to talk about this, that, or whatever, and we need to do this, and we need to do this, and we need to do this, it's hard for people to feel like if they're not doing that, that they are still okay with the Lord. So one client um, on his mission really got tripped up with the perfect obedience thing. It's really emphasized a lot for missionaries. And he finally gained some relief when he saw a line in the white handbook that said to follow these principles with the guidance of the spirit. Wow. So in the hand, the, the white Bible, as it's called, or it has been in the past, he was given permission there to not do it exactly point by point by point the way maybe it was written, that he had the agency and the ability to own it. And that gave him some freedom. But if we just hammer perfect obedience on a number of variables, I do think that we create problems for people thinking that if they don't measure up, then they're out of luck. I've thought a lot about perfect obedience because it is, I think all, us and all of our listeners agree that obedience is a fundamental commandment of the church and a fundamental principle of what God wants us to do. But I've, I've been worried about that term. I've almost, I've said it times on Twitter. I think when we went from obedience to perfect obedience, I think we just created more problems and perhaps more anxiety and sin and exactly. and added to people's load. I think people know what the standard is. I, there's even a term, a sin-resistant generation that I've yes. heard. And I've, I've thought, 
well, that's a, a good goal, but I think it's not a realistic goal. Exactly. Because <laughs> um, part of mortality is just messing up. And I've always wanted to normalize messing up for the YSAs, not to sort of say go mess up, but just once oh, they purpose, have. purpose at least, right? <laughs> once they have is sort of normalize that as part of mortality. And great growth comes through the mistakes we made. We're all on a journey. Yeah. And our Father and our Savior, spirit they recognize that and they created this for us so they give us the space to go through that journey so you you made me think of um some counsel that a client wrote down for me that i wanted to share good. and i think this is a good good place to share this um, he says give yourself space time and room to process your imperfections through the atonement of christ we really do rely on being saved through the atonement of christ we likely won't be able to catch every imperfection and repent of every sin. And that is okay. And he wrote that in quotes. I mean, in all capitals. And that is okay. The Savior's net of mercy and grace is big enough to catch everything. And I love, I think that's a perfect description of, of what you're talking about. That's great. Yeah. Unfortunately, with the anxiety, that gets distorted. And so it's almost impossible for someone with scrupulosity to believe that. Yeah, so I recognize that I think what you're helping me understand is someone with scrupulosity, I can give them the doctrine, remind them of the doctrine in our church and create space. I didn't think of the parable of the prodigal son. When he came back, the Savior didn't make him grovel. Yeah, He ran to him and kissed him and put a robe on his finger, robe on his body and a ring on his finger mm -hmm. to signify he came back as a son. So there's no... You know, the doctrine there to me is when you come back, you come back as a son, you're worthy, you're complete. Um, but I think what you're helping me understand is even if someone understands that on some level, on an intellectual level, if they're in the middle of scrupulosity, they can't implement yeah. that in their no, lives. No, in fact, they, they understand it probably better than most of us. <laughs> That's these, interesting. These clients, I mean, they can write perfect sacrament meeting talks on faith or repentance, um, the role of confession cognitively they understand Cognitive. all of this perfectly and so you say well why can't they figure it out it's because the anxiety is distorting and anxiety has a natural um because it's so compelling it's just so painful and so uncomfortable particularly at those higher toxic levels it creates this urge to escape and avoid so instead of doing what's necessary to work through that anxiety um, because it's not the natural impulse. The natural impulse is to escape and avoid. So they try to avoid any thought that causes the anxiety, and that actually perpetuates the cycle. Because wow. to break the cycle, we actually, as you mentioned earlier, have to face that fear and confront that. And it's just, it's not something we know as lay people how to do. And so that's why you need to go to treatment with a licensed mental health professional to really try to break that cycle of anxiety and, and it's really necessary to do not only cognitive uh, work where you're looking at your thoughts and, and weeding out the problems there, but to actually do exposures to those things that you fear. And the exposure is exceedingly powerfully beneficial in, in doing that. But they're doctrinally completely sound. They'll give you, ask them, ask them to preach to you and they can preach to you, but they, they're still stuck in that anxiety. And it's just so condemning. It's so condemning. So um, a couple of other things uh, that I was mentioning, just, just for your listeners, different flavors. I talked about they feel responsible to perfect, to perfect themselves. They have concerns about perfect honesty. They may have violent thoughts where they're interpreting those as being immoral and they're offending God because they have these, um, these violent obsessions. They may have a belief that they've broken the law in some way. Uh, a lot of them get tripped up on this idea of confession that they need to confess everything that perhaps wasn't 100% upstandingly perfect. Um, they may worry they if they have confessed that they haven't done it properly, that they haven't confessed every sin they've ever done. They may remember more details and then go, oh, I need to go back and remember these details. So they really get tripped up there. The scrupulosity, again, if you think about what we talked about with anxiety, it's very impulsive. It's very uncomfortable. In scrupulosity, it becomes just condemning and damning and critical fear inducing they're afraid of god so in the september 2019 enzyme article um, there's another chart and it compares scrupulosity to principles of pure religion so to 
to again show us again the doctrine. The doctrine is ennobling, it's uplifting, it's loving, it's peaceful. But in anxiety, you don't have access to those things at all. So that's another chart that your listeners can look up. Um, I love this chart. There's like 10 things oh. on this chart with one side being scrupulosity and the other side being pure, pure religion. And again, my scrupulosity clients helped me put this the... together. So these are straight from people who are really struggling. This idea at the bottom of the chart, I'm perpetually guilty and Christ's atonement doesn't apply to me. They get stuck in that and it's just so painful. And yet the true doctrine is I can be worthy even though I'm not perfect. I screw up every day. My kids can tell you. Um, Christ is my savior and his atonement applies to me personally. And that's the doctrine. And scrupulosity when it comes in with these damning statements that um, you're guilty, you're worthless, you can never recover because of these sins, you've got these blacklists forever. That's just not the spirit and it's not the doctrine of Christ. So that's a way that people can start to discern if they're in that trap, that maybe they need a little more help to get out of it. So the suffering that they experience is, is, is just so painful. I, I, I talk about it in one of my presentations at BYU Education Week, that they're really facing the jaws of hell because every little thing, their eternal salvation is hanging in the balance. It's terrifying. So if anything, parents, leaders listening to this, the empathy that we can have as, as we learn about scrupulosity to understand what they're really going through, not to minimize, honey, you're okay. Just have more faith, right? That is not going to be helpful to understand that this is real to them and to identify it as obsessive anxiety, that this is scrupulosity and this isn't the spirit. Then they can start to pull away from it and, and perhaps pursue treatment to get free of it. But just saying, honey, it's no big deal. You're fine. Just get over it. Where's your faith? That's not going to be helpful because it's an issue of anxiety. It's not an issue of faith. So that's another thing that people really struggle with is they feel like it's an issue of faith. Right. So they keep going back to their bishops, their mission presidents, their stake presidents, and they feel like because it keeps coming up, and they can't get over it, that it's a moral failing on their part. And it says something about them as a failure. And it's not a moral failing. It's a mental illness. It's OCD. And so instead of going to the bishop, stake president, mission president, they need to be going to the mental health professional. So bishops and stake presidents, ecclesiastical leaders are excellent judges in Israel to help give us spiritual guidance, to help us through the repentance process. But obsessions and compulsions are not the bishop's job. And the bishop isn't trained to handle those, but it is the job of the mental health professional. So there's a difference in role and, and both can be important for someone with scrupulosity. I hope our listeners, I wish you could see the smile on my face because <laughs> I just really agree with what Dr. McClendon's teaching here. And I hope you can feel the spirit of what she just said in those last three or four minutes, because that is a paradigm shift for me. I'm walking out of a YSA assignment completed, and I recognize in hindsight, I guess the question I'm going to ask you now is, if if I were just starting my YSA, YSA assignment, and I'm now aware of scrupulosity, and in my thousand interviews I'm going to have, this yeah. is going to be, there's going to be some wonderful YSAs, this is what's really going on with them. What advice do you have for me to recognize this early so I get so I recognize it's a mental illness challenge and not a meeting with me need? Even though I'll continue to meet with them, I just recognize I need to get clinical people involved. Sure. Here. I think as you talk with them, if you're sensing that they're being driven by anxiety, the urgency, maybe even breathlessness as they speak, the unsettledness, you recognize that they're coming from a place of anxiety and not peaceful reflection on perhaps a sinful behavior, that's going to be a first clue. You'll feel the anxiety oozing from them. Um, and if they are in your office and then all of a sudden another week or two later, they're back, but you didn't ask them to come back and then they're back again, that's the clue to start saying, Hey, what's, you know, what's going on here? Let's look at this a little bit better and, and 
maybe take you somewhere else because the bishop continuing to meet with them is actually going to reinforce that desire to confess, which is a compulsion at that point. It's an OCD compulsion. So part of treatment, I would actually say to someone, do not go to your bishop at this point to continue to confess. I reassure them in some ways to say, if you have actually done a sinful behavior that needs confession to a bishop, after we're through with some of the therapy so that you're in a healthier place, if you're able to look back and the spirit still says, you know, this really is an issue, then sure, take care of it then. But the anxiety, of course, says, nope, you got to take care of it right now. Absolute immediate urgency. So really discerning the energy that, that is coming from them. And if they're not being satisfied long term, if you can comfort them, give them the spiritual guidance that you need, and that resolves the issue for them, then you're probably not dealing with scrupulosity. But if they're coming back with the what ifs, what buts, and what ifs and howevers, and now I remember this and oh, I forgot to tell you this and whatever. Those are some clues that perhaps you may be having that issue. So here's here's an example that I prepared for our meeting today. This is um, from somebody who sent me their story. They've now recovered from scrupulosity, but this was a very painful situation where he became concerned at the age of about 19. With uh, He remembered something that he'd done at age 19, and it kind of sent him in this frantic tailspin. And then he got obsessed with this concept. And he's, he's not 19 now. No. Okay, he's older and he's yes. remembering. But uh, he became, his anxiety became more fueled by the idea to obey, honor, and sustain the law. So he became obsessed with the idea that he'd been breaking the law in these particular ways. So, so I want to walk you through to illustrate for you how confession, which you think if it's a religious issue, confession should relieve the mind and be helpful spiritually. In scrupulosity, it's not. So here's what he did. His anxiety was so frantic and so high that after so much time, he just couldn't handle it anymore. He actually called the police to turn himself in and confess for the laws that he felt he'd broken. You have to imagine wow. the kind of build up to that, right? Being terrified that he was gonna be thrown in jail. They actually told him he was legally fine, that he hadn't done anything that they were concerned about that didn't comfort him. Okay. So we're talking about authority. They're the laws of the land. He's worried about breaking That'd be the laws kind of, of the a land. good feeling. It's like having the IRS tell you that all your tax returns sure. for the last 20 years are clean. But with anxiety, with the OCD scrupulosity, it didn't comfort him. So then he talked to his bishop who reassured him that he'd done nothing wrong. He felt, and he said this, I felt peaceful for probably 10 or 15 minutes before I was unable again to cope. He then ended up a few days or weeks later talking to his stake president, and he said, this helped me temporarily. He ultimately, things continued to be miserable. He started isolating himself. He couldn't eat or sleep. He started asking for priesthood blessings almost every day, and he became suicidal. If it's a spiritual problem and the spirit is prompting you to repent, you will feel peace after your confession. But if the confession is driven by a scrupulous anxiety, this is the process to the point where these people are sometimes becoming suicidal. Interesting. Yeah. It's very helpful to walk through an example like that. Yeah. I think we can all can relate to that. Yeah. And yet feel so much compassion for the people who are struggling in this way, you know. So in the church doctrine, confession is an important piece of what we teach. So that's why we get tripped up sometimes. So I think it'd be helpful. I mentioned in my article in the Enzyme that the Bible dictionary clarifies, and this is a quote um, from the Bible dictionary entry on confession. Confession to a church official, in most cases the bishop, is necessary whenever one's transgression is of a nature for which the church might impose loss of membership or other disciplinary action. And the reason I feel like that's important to state is because the Lord expects us to be repenting on a daily basis. President Nelson just talked yeah. about that again. We are supposed to do the bulk of our repentance one-on-one -on -one with the Lord. We don't need an intermediary. We don't need the bishop to clear us of all of our misdeeds, maybe because I got impatient with my kids and Agreed. yelled at them or... I jaywalked across the street or, you know, I can turn to the Lord with a humble heart each day and say, you know, this probably wasn't my finest moment. Please forgive me for this. And I want to do better tomorrow. 
in scrupulosity, every one of those minor issues becomes so scary and so huge that they feel like they need to confess each of those to the bishop. And the doctrine is not that. As a judge in Israel, he helps us with things that are important for church membership. I really agree with that. And I wish we taught. There's so many messages I still get on social media. I have one in my queue today from Twitter, somebody asking me, do I need to talk to the bishop about this? And I'm not a priesthood leader to answer those questions, obviously, but I, I do like what you taught here and the role of a priesthood leader. So I think that's excellent. Yeah. And so I know we've got about 10 minutes left in this podcast. I want to um, ha- help us understand, you know, I realize that it would be multiple rounds of therapy potentially to get someone, you know, cured of curiosity or managing it. I don't know what terms you'd use, but just any thoughts on what you, you do clinically to help someone overcome this. And So again, I talked about uh, the cognitive approach where we're looking at thoughts. And that can be helpful to help people identify where the distortion lies. But I have found for the OCD cases that I have, and not just scrupulosity, but OCD in general, the biggest bang for our therapeutic buck is in the exposures. So we literally will expose someone to the feared stimuli and they're able to take in new data and it restructures, you know, brain connections and neural networks and all these things to help us realize that this feared thing doesn't come to pass. So for example, a simple spider phobia, we're going to not avoid the spider, which is what they've done. We're going to bring the spider closer. We're going to study about the spider. We're going to learn about the spider. We're going to go look at the spider in the zoo when it's behind a glass case. We're going to then go to a pet store and have someone pull a spider out of the glass case, ultimately probably getting to the point where you're touching and holding the spider yourself. Wow. Now, the idea of touching and holding the spider at the beginning is absolutely too much. It's too terrifying. You work up to it typically in therapy. Most people do not go to just a jump in the deep end of the swimming pool because psychologically it's just overwhelming and too much. So I had a client not too long ago, we were going to be doing an exposure and the idea of the exposure when he realized what it was going to entail for him emotionally just began to sob. So these are hard, hard things that we do. So as we work up to him, it doesn't become quite so scary. And he was ultimately been able to do some exposure recently that he didn't think he could do. And of course, found it very helpful um, for his process. So in scrupulosity, it gets a little trickier, right? We don't have a spider. We have fear of eternal damnation. So a lot of the exposure that we do is what we call imaginal exposure. Imaginal exposure. In your imagination, right? You think about it. So we actually bring the feared thing closer, just like we did with the spider. So we bring condemnation closer. We bring eternal damnation closer. So a fear of, um, uh, I haven't confessed everything. I need to go talk to the bishop. You know, I'm never going to be forgiven. Those thoughts that they fear, they're trying to push away all the time. We bring them closer. We'll actually write those thoughts that cause the anxiety. We'll write them in a paragraph actually here in session, have them write it and we'll read it and it'll spark their anxiety higher and we'll read it again. And we'll read it again over and over and over ad nauseum to the point where the anxiety peaks because they're being exposed to what what triggers them. But the natural course of anxiety actually comes down on its own in time. I didn't mention that earlier when we talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. We don't actually have to do a compulsion to make our anxiety go down. That's the trap. Our anxiety, just the way that our Heavenly Father has designed us, our anxiety will naturally come down over time while we stay in the feared situation. So instead of doing something like washing my hands to get my fear of germs to go away, I can be exposed to that germ and not wash my hands. And if I sit there long enough, my really high anxiety will naturally come down on its own. And I learn, maybe I don't have to go wash my hands 50 times right now. So with the scrupulosity, we bring those fears closer. We write about them. We read them. We talk about them over and over and over again. But and that wouldn't be with a priesthood leader. That's that's not really a priesthood leader thing. So we're not no. talking the no. bishop here and reconfessing. We're talking a no. clinically trained person that can bring those fears closer in a 
clinical way and then correct and then reduce the anxiety correct correct and as that anxiety comes down the person learns how to cope because they're using the safety behaviors to avoid anxiety because the anxiety is so high they can't cope they are learning they're bringing in new data that they can cope with this anxiety without having to do that safety behavior, which compulsion is a safety, safety behavior. I don't have to go repent 50 times on my knees. I don't have to go see my bishop. My anxiety is at a place where I can cope and I understand what's going on and I can deal with this in a healthy way. So it is tough because you're asking people to face the thing that they fear the most. So OCD treatment, some of the hardest things I ever ask people to do, and yet it's highly effective. Like this is a message for your listeners is anxiety is very well treated and it's often very short term treatment. That's great. Many people, most people are not signing up for years and years of therapy. Uh, the treatments, you know, for anxiety, OCD are oftentimes eight to 16 sessions. Interesting. You know, so in a couple of months... You can change your whole life, but by not going into that treatment and not understanding what needs to happen in your personal situation and continuing the cycle that you're in, you may never get out of it. But a short time of some very specific therapeutic interventions can change everything. And again, because you go back to the idea of it being a brain disorder, these structures are not operating properly. So you have to learn how to get them to work but you have to kind of do it in a manual way. It's not working automatically the way it should anymore. And so through the exposure therapy and the cognitive therapy, you're able to start shifting the gears and getting them working a little bit better so that you can get to the point where they're working in an automatic way again. But it takes conscious work. Like with scrupulosity, you're not just going to one day kind of be over it. You're going to have to do some conscious work. Now, even getting over it, you may still have some tendencies that are going to linger and those are likely going to be positive good so the loyalty for example that i talked about the conscientiousness those are still going to be there and it's going to bless people's lives in a positive way that's cool rather than rather than that strength becoming a weakness for them so one person wrote um my loyalty to god and desire to be completely honest is still there it was just necessary to recalibrate that loyalty in a healthy way and then he said this, I believe I'm more loyal now than I ever have been. It's just manifested in the correct and healthy actions and feelings. When those anxious moments start to move in, I shift toward giving myself the space to walk away from it for a day or two, then look at it again later through proper perspective. So again, these are people who are very loyal to God and they want to be good sons and daughters and they are, and they can keep those qualities, but they fear through treatment that I'm giving him a reason to rationalize sin. And so it's a very tough, tough treatment, difficult situation. So I would encourage someone in that situation to actually get mental health treatment. My articles are great, but not that I'm biased, of course. We like your articles. We agree. <laughs> They're good. It's good basic information to help you become aware, but you need the personalized treatment to break the cycle that you're personally in because everybody's a little bit different and the flavor is different. And sometimes you have to be creative with the types of interventions and exposures. And so you can work with a mental health professional to figure out how to do those in a way that they're actually going to be useful. So you can actually put yourself into exposure situations if you don't really know what you're doing. And if they are too overwhelming, they can. And so you can't stay in them long enough for your anxiety to go down. And so you cut and run in the middle of the exposure you're actually just going to re-traumatize yourself. Interesting. Right? Because you're you're experiencing all the high anxiety, but you haven't experienced the second part, which is the natural reduction in anxiety. So not only are you re-traumatizing, but you're actually reinforcing yeah. the anxiety. So you have to stay in those exposures long enough for the anxiety to peak and then come down to where you're feeling comfortable. And we call that the level of habituation. You hear the word habit in there where you can be in that anxiety provoking situation, or you can have those anxiety provoking thoughts and they no longer are triggering the intense anxiety and you can feel comfortable. So just my encouragement to not try to do, if you have pretty, pretty intense scrupulosity to not try to really do them on your own, unless you're confident that you can stay in them long enough to experience that come down in anxiety. 
this is really helpful, and we're just about to the end of our time allotment, but I want to make sure, I'm going to repeat something, and you tell me if this is accurate. Yes. So if I have somebody in my life that is working through scrupulosity, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's a mouthful. And that's, at the same time that person doesn't feel the spirit, that would be possible and logical because of your point about anxiety releasing hormones that make it harder to feel the spirit, and you're not functioning at a... And so... so and I realize where if you if the diagnosis is scrupulosity and you're not feeding the spirit, that just kind of adds to the adds to the narrative you're making inside of your brain that well, of course I don't hear the feel the spirit because and it's sort of right. so you're kind of answering the question I gave at the ask at the beginning, and then as you go through this therapy and you bring the anxiety down, then I would assume those hormones aren't being released that are blocking sort of your ability to feel the spirit. And you start to feel the spirit again. And that's just from the clinical side. You've always probably been have the worthiness to feel the spiritual. On the spiritual side, your body just hasn't, the receptacles aren't firing in the right way to feel the spirit. Right. I, I can liken it also to someone with depression who takes antidepressants. So antidepressants blunt arousal. Mm -hmm. So they bring down distress effectively in some cases, but it also blunts positive feelings. Mm. So people will talk about being numb. So it's very difficult to feel the spirit on antidepressants. It's also very difficult to feel a spirit if you're on medication for chronic illness or other things. So there's lots of reasons, lots of things that can interfere with our ability to feel the spirit. So blaming ourselves and saying, I must not be worthy compounds the problem, yeah. right? You can see. But if you can step back and say, it's not a worthiness issue and it's not a moral failing, it's OCD, then you say, well, what do I need to do about that? I need to go get treatment for OCD. That's perfect. Is what I need to do. And then through that treatment, the idea through the treatment is ultimately to help the person be able to live their religion in a way where they can feel peace and love and fulfillment in their religion rather than feeling punishment and condemnation. So although their fear is you're leading me astray and just giving me an excuse to rationalize sin, Ultimately, my goal is so that you can enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ and live it in your heart more fully. That's great. Any so, final things you'd like to share with our listeners? I've given you a mouthful. I know I've talked a lot here, but... It's what um, we wanted. You know, my clients have really taught me a lot. And... Um, my YSA's taught me a lot. <laughs> yes. And I praise them and praise anybody who's struggling with this for being such careful disciples of Christ. They love the Lord. And this is not a question about whether they are faithful or whether they love God or whether they're good enough as a child of God. It's about anxiety. And so if they can recognize that and get the help that they need, they can regain that understanding of who they are as a divine son of God, daughter of God, child of God, rather than a concern about whether they're quote unquote doing everything the right way or not. And we'll end on that. That's so yeah. full of hope. Yeah. Th the gospel of Jesus Christ is exalting, but anxiety is damning at those higher levels. So if we learn to bring them down to a healthy level, we can coexist and have some anxiety to help us perform well in our life. Um, and we can also discern the feelings of the spirit to receive the personal revelation that we need in our own life. Um, thank you, Dr. Deborah Theobald McClendon, for being on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler and your wonderful clinical um, and education. I'm not sure I'm using all the right terms, but we just recognize you have this wonderful expertise and you're writing about it, you're talking about it, you're meeting with people and you're bringing voice to it. And it just helps us do better. So thank you for being on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. You're and, welcome. And thank you, our listeners.